chapter. Brothers, joining in imitating me, keep your eyes on those <clears throat> who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. They end in dis- their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. As the prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Thank you, Earl. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, there are many things that fade away. Um, there are many things that change. But we thank you that your word stays the same because you stay the same. And Father, we thank you that it was the same when your spirit inspired um, your servant Paul to write these words. And it is the same today. And we ask that you would send your spirit to help us, to illumine our hearts, illumine this text, Lord, that we might draw near and be equipped for godliness. It's in the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. Have you ever noticed that when you own a house or a car, that as soon as you get something fixed, something else breaks down. (laughs) You're working over here, right? And you're pouring out a lot of money and effort. And you get that done and then something over here unexpected um, breaks down. Do you remember the game Whack-A-Mole? In the arcade games, you, you remember these things? There was a, it would be a board and you'd have a, a rubber mallet or a padded mallet and these moles would, would pop out of the board and you would have to hit them down. And as soon as you hit one, what happened? Another one would pop up. But what I thought was really unfair is that towards the end of that game, every time they all started popping up at the same time. You would get one taken care of, and the next thing you know, you'd be having to get another. Well, sometimes it happens in life, isn't it? Sometimes life feels a little bit like whack-a-mole, where we can hardly keep up with pace. When one thing arises after another, and it seems as though that's what's happening in the Philippian church. Uh, they are dealing with uh, many things going on in that church. They're, they're dealing with persecution, both from Jews and Gentiles alike. Uh, they're facing division and dissension within the church. And they're dealing with false teachers. A few weeks ago, we looked at a, one set of false teachers who we might call the Judaizers, the, these legalists who were traveling around saying that in order to truly be saved or to order to be a, a real Christian, a true Christian, um, a better Christian, you had to obey the law of Moses. You had to adopt circumcision and obey the dietary laws and the ceremonial law. Well, this morning, we actually see there was another set of false teachers that were running around as well. If you imagine a pendulum, you know, that swings from one side to the other, this is the other side of the pendulum swing. See, instead of saying that we are saved by our good works or maintain God's love by our good works, the pendulum swings to the other side and it says that we can do whatever we want, that our lifestyle doesn't matter. 
that because Christ has saved us, he'll forgive us whatever we do, and therefore I can do whatever I want. We call this sensuality, sensual living, licentiousness, or the technical word antinomianism. But you know, the thing is that we would, we would see that this side of things, this other side of the pendulum, is really legalism's ugly younger brother. They're related to each other. Because see, the thing that is true of both of these things is it's me-centered. It's self-centered. It's about what I have to do or what I get to do instead of being focused upon Christ. What's the answer to legalism? The idea that we can save ourselves or, or make ourselves better loved by God? Well, we look to Jesus and realize that he has done everything needed for our salvation. What is the answer to sensuality, living in a um, licentious manner? The idea that we can live however we want to and it's okay? Well, it's looking to Jesus and realizing that he has changed us. And he's called us to live in a different manner because we have now been made citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is no longer here on earth. We may live here for a while, but we are more like exiles than we are as citizens in this world. We belong to a world that is to come, and when we have been changed from the inside out, that's going to change how we live. When our papers no longer say Bruton, Alabama, but the New Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth, that's going to change how we live. See, both of these things, legalism and sensual living, both of these things look to self, whereas we look to heaven. We look to our Savior. We look for him to come and to return and to change us and make all things new. Well, to begin our passage, Paul speaks of when new things pop up, that we ought to look to those whom we can imitate. Verse 17 tells, uh, Paul tells the Philippians to imitate him and to imitate other believers who are like him, who are not perfect, but have seen what they are just coming across and, and watch how they handle this. The Philippian church is still rather young. It's about 10 years old at this point, depending on when this book was written. And so these believers have um, been walking with the Lord up to 10 years, but as a, a new church, they still are unsure about how to handle certain things. Now, the Philippian church is doing well. Paul commends them left, right, and center. But still, when new things pop up, he says, remember how we walked when we were amongst you. When new folks come in and new ideas are, are preached before you and presented for you, and they just don't sound right, remember how we handled these things. Remember our imitation. Now, now, Paul isn't saying, hey, look at me. In fact, he clears this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He's already said in last week's passage that he's not perfect. He has not already attained the resurrection of the dead or perfection. Instead, he's pointing them to the example that he is walking with the Lord as he looks to Jesus not just to himself, but to those who were with him. We see this in our text in verse 17. He says, uh, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So even those within the church who are walking according to the Lord. Have you ever been talking to someone and, and their eyes dart away and they look at something 
I had this happen this week or last. I can't remember what it was, and I can't remember who I was talking to, which is a blessing. Uh, but the whole time I was talking to the person, they were looking out the window. And so what did I do? I, I turned and I looked to where they're looking. Their, their gaze, the direction of their eyes, sets my direction of my eyes. Well, as Paul and these other godly men and women, as they look to Jesus... As we look to them, our eyes are focused where their eyes are focused. Upon Jesus, his cross, his love, his forgiveness, his direction, his wisdom, the narrow way of Jesus. You know, it's a blessing to have such people in our lives, isn't it? When we come across something we don't know how to deal with. I'm a young parent. Um, You know, this is the first time I've had a three and a half year old. And it's the second time I've had a a 14-month-old, but I don't know if it's doing much good. (laughs) But I look to y'all. I look to my parents. I look to godly parents before us to know how to handle these situations when we get, when we despair and we get frustrated and when we don't know what to do. I've called many of you. What do I do? And as your eyes are pointing to Jesus, you point me the same way. Or at school, as we deal with temptation, peer pressure, as, as folks are, are, are calling us to do things we know we shouldn't do, what do we do? We, we can look to other students, perhaps older students who have walked where we have and know how to deal with these things, to imitate them and to run, to look to Jesus as they look to Jesus, or in the workplace, or in the family. Certainly as, as, as men, as godly men, we, we ought to be setting that example of looking to Jesus that our, our family would find in us an example of godliness. As, as elders and deacons, one of the qualifications that we read in 1 Timothy 3 is to be an example for the flock. And so we look to Jesus. Well, who were these folks that were, were traveling around this second set of false teachers? We don't know a ton about them, but we do know a few things. We find those in verses 18 through 19. We read this. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. The first thing we find is that they were enemies of the cross of Christ. Now Paul says some pretty startling things in his epistles, doesn't he? But perhaps this might be the most startling. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. To be an enemy is not someone who is ignorant, without knowledge. To be an enemy, to be hostile, is to be personally hostile, with full knowledge of what you're doing. So we think about the enemies of our land. They don't do it just because they don't know better. They do it because they hate us. As we think about enemies of the cross of Christ, these folks were not the good guys. But here's the thing, they masqueraded as such. I was reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning in my, my own devotion of, of how uh, Satan and his uh, minions, the demons, will disguise themselves as angels of light. And certainly this is what's going on in this text here. These are enemies of the cross. When we read the cross, we, we should not think of, of two pieces of wood nailed together, but, but what was accomplished there by our Savior. They are opposed to the redemption of the sons of God. They are opposed to the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus and the free gospel that God saves us not because of our works, but because of his grace and his love as we look to him in faith. 
They walk this way because this is their state. This is who they are. They are God's enemies. But here is what's so dangerous. They are claiming to be Christians. But they're living in a way and teach something that is contrary to the implications of the cross. See, upon the cross, the Lord dealt with the power of our sin. Before we become Christians, we have no power to say no to sin. When, when our lives, when our, when our flesh tempts us, when we desire to give in, to indulge just this one time, second time, a hundredth time, a thousandth time, if we don't have Christ in us, if the Holy Spirit has not made our hearts new, we have no power to say no to it. But upon the cross as our Savior died, a lot of things happened. The guilt of our sin was paid for. God poured his wrath out on his son that, that we should have had for all of eternity. And Christ broke the chains of the power of sin in our lives. That the things the flesh lies to us about and says, you need this, you need it now, and again and again and again, that we have the power to say no by the indwelling spirit within us. But this group of folks, they were not saying, you don't have the power. They were just saying, hey, just give in to it. It's a good thing to, to indulge your flesh. It's a good thing to, to, to just do whatever you want to do. Just to sin all the time. But we find here that their minds were set on earthly things. Now to be earthly minded does not mean that you're thinking about trees or grass or food plots. To be earthly minded is to think of things opposed to the Lord. Romans 8, 5 through 8 tells us this very explicitly. It says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the things of the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They were masquerading as such, but they were not believers. You know, the fact is, as we apply this to our own lives, um, we often want what the word of God opposes, don't we? But let's not lie about that. We often want what is opposed by the word of God. From wandering eyes and lusts to minds of laziness and shirking responsibility, from fear and anxiety to lack of faith and despair, from shopping binges with the credit card to being little lax with what we watch on television, from gossip and slander to what seems like harmless fun, we fight every day with the flesh and with temptation. Now, here's the thing. We fight this battle, and then someone comes along. These are uh, young believers in Philippi. Then someone comes along and says, why are you fighting? You have the freedom of Christ to do whatever you want to. They would abuse the grace of God and say you don't have to fight temptation. It doesn't matter in the end anyway. God just wants you to be happy. That's a lie we hear a lot these days, isn't it? That God just wants us to be happy. You know, I don't actually find that anywhere in Scripture. God wants us to be joyful. God wants us to be blessed. And indeed, one day we will be eternally happy. And, and we are blessed sometimes with happiness this side of, of the Jordan. But 
But Philippians 1, we've already seen that God has appointed us not only to believe, but also to suffer. But we fight this. So certainly when someone comes around and says, this is, this is okay, we like that. It gives us an excuse to indulge the flesh and whatever it is that tempts you. But Paul is going to use a threefold description in verse 20 to talk about these folks, and none of them are flattering. The first is that their end is destruction. He begins with the end. He tells us their end. Let's be clear about this. He's talking about hell. This word destruction is the same word that is used in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. We read, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. See, that there was a kernel of truth in what they said. We cannot lose our salvation. And salvation is alone by what Christ has done for us and his righteousness that is given to us by faith, not by anything that we've earned. They think that they can sin so that grace may abound, so why shouldn't we just sin so that grace will abound a ton? But Romans 6 tells us that we should not live this way. Shall we sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? The end of their, their road is destruction. It is hell when we think that um, when God comes into our lives, he doesn't change us. Their God is their belly. Certainly this does apply to food. We shouldn't remove that meaning. They have been mastered by food instead of being the master of their food. But there's something more than that here, right? This is not just talking about food. It's talking about appetites. You know, there are certain foods I just can't say no to. We had one on Wednesday night for dessert. Do you remember what we had for, Wednesday night butter, for, for dessert Wednesday night? I do. Because I went home with four slices of it. Buttermilk pie. I love some buttermilk pie. But I think the most, however, is, uh, I've shared this before, is cream cheese with pepper jelly on rich crackers. If I ever had a last meal, this is what it would contain. I can't say no to it. I will make myself sick on this stuff. I have a hard time with my appetites when I get pepper jelly in my sight. But what's going on here is not just what they eat. It's talking about our appetites of our flesh and whatever that looks like. They live in a way that they look only to indulge their own desires. And the problem with that is we all know, unfortunately from experience, that when you indulge the flesh, next time you have to indulge a little more and a little more and a little more. But it doesn't in there, it says actually that they glory in their shame. Now this is scary. As believers in Christ, we are called to be repentant. When we sin, the Holy Spirit works in our conscience and he pricks our hearts and he he makes us miserable until we repent of our sin and turn to Christ. Because we have salvation, because we have forgiveness, we've been called to live in a different way and the Holy Spirit doesn't let us stay in a condition where we are not repentant before the Lord. But in this situation, that's not their lifestyle. They actually not only accept what they're doing, but they glory in what the Lord finds to be shameful. We might just say this is what cable television is. Indeed, in our culture, it's harder and harder to find something that we can watch as a family. We've been watching a lot of Andy Griffith. Uh, because it's pretty inoffensive. But how many decades of that must go back to, to find that? But sometimes we struggle with the same thing. But in light of all this, how does Paul call us to live? 
verses 28 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We have a homeland, a new homeland. It is heaven. We live in a, in a life of tension, don't we? we? We know as we look at this world, even as we just look at this election cycle, that something is broken with this world. We feel that tension when we hear of murders. We feel that tension when someone loses their job. We feel that tension when we, when we fail at sin. We, we feel that tension when we drive by a hospital or a police car or an ambulance. These things exist because we live in a fallen world. We know this tension, and it's because we don't belong here. We belong in heaven. This is where our citizenship is. We've been called here. This is our mission field. This is where we get to glorify the Lord. This is where we get to tell others about him and the citizenship that is available to them in heaven as well. We are more like permanent resident aliens than we are like citizens of this world. If you've ever been overseas, you'll know that um, you're immediately aware of how different everything is. If you go to an English-speaking country, how that things are just still very different. Now, this group was saying, however, that, that we should live like the world around us. There shouldn't be any difference between us and the world around us. But if our citizenship is in heaven and we've been given new hearts, our souls are changed. Our fruit doesn't save us. Our good works don't make God love us anymore. But we are called to live fruitful lives out of love and obedience and thankfulness to him. So as I think about my own life, does my life look that much differently than the world around me? Certainly there are seasons in my life that it certainly did not look all that much different at all. So think about where we belong. I love what Hendrickson, the theologian, says. He says, for Christians, it was heaven that gave them birth. Their names are inscribed on heaven's register. Their lives are being governed from heaven. Their rights are secured in heaven. Their interests are being promoted in heaven. To heaven their thoughts and prayers ascend and their hopes aspire. Many of their friends are there even now. And their, earth, their heavenly mansions are now being prepared. What good news. What good news. Well, from heaven we await a savior. He will return in the same way that he went back to heaven as we learn in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Um, I remember when I was a kid, going out, my, my grandfather uh, dragged me out of bed middle of the night one night to go out to the shooting range at the farm so that we could watch a comet. Now, I didn't really have any fun on that journey. 45-minute drive, it was midnight. What in the world was I doing out here? But you know, I was confident that when we got there, we were going to see that comet. I had to wait for it. I didn't know how long I'd have to wait for it. But do you know what? We saw the comet. I wonder if we eagerly await the return of our Savior in the same way. Certainly we don't always enjoy the journey. But we can be certain that at the end of the days, our Savior will come. And he will come and he will make all things new, including our lowly bodies. He will transform them be like his glorious body. He does all this by the same power that enables him to subject all things to himself. He rules and reigns now with his great power and one day he will return in power and make all things new. 
But here's the thing, in order to not be counted for destruction, in order to be part of the citizenship of heaven, we must first submit to him and surrender all to him. My question to you this morning is, have you surrendered all? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our citizenship is in heaven, that is secure, that nothing can change that. Our papers cannot be revoked, that our papers are sealed with the blood of Jesus, our, the perfect lamb who came to take away the sins of the world. Lord, help us and enable us by your grace to live, as li- live lives that are worthy of our calling, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus as we look to heaven, as we wait for the return of our Savior. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen.